Welcome to Offtakes. We are the podcast decoding the complex world of climate change and carbon credits and carbon markets, hosted by myself today, Derek from Wealthgreen, and my good friend Kyle. Kyle, how are you? Derek, I am well. How are you? It's good to see you. Yes, likewise. Great to see you. So today we want to talk about project types. Dif- what are the different types of projects that generate carbon credits? Because we we kind of alluded to this earlier that, you know, not all carbon credits are created equal. Uh, part yeah. of that comes down to, you know, the different uh, um, leakage, additionality, and, and these other factors that have to do with the actual project type. And so what are those different, um, you know, project types? Uh, and, you know, I guess if I can start off with, there's two major categories, I guess, avoidance, which we talked about earlier, which is mm-hmm. avoiding one ton of, of, of emissions from getting into the atmosphere. And then there's removals, which is actually actively taking out yeah. a ton of carbon from, from the atmosphere. Why don't we start with uh, avoidance? What, what kind of projects sure. are there? And can you give us an example of, you know, the, a type of that project? And, and uh, more interestingly, like what are the pros and cons of each project type? Yeah. And I think maybe it's even worth having a discussion in those pros and cons. Uh, cause I'm sure you've got, I'm sure you've got opinions. Speaking of opinions, I am going to just deliver our standard caveat, which is, um, uh, you know, today we're going to be talking about potentially buying and trading in carbon offsets or carbon credits. And that is an inherently risky process where you could lose some or all of your starting capital, uh, to decide whether those are right for opportunities for you, we wholeheartedly recommend that you speak with a financial advisor. Uh, but with that, yeah, talking about maybe avoidance projects first. Uh, so just a quick refresher for people. Uh, avoidance is a project that does what it says, avoids the release of CO2 into the atmosphere as opposed to actually removing that. So there's lots of cat- or lots of different project types that fit in that one. Uh, and I'm going to kind of broadly go over several, um, but uh, by no means is this an exhaustive list. Um, we just thought we'd choose some that I think were interesting. Um, so the first one, you know, that stands out to me is like energy efficiency or fuel switching. Um, and so there's lots of different things that can fit there. But, you know, broadly speaking, this is... Um, switching towards a more energy efficient uh, product or or actually like taking a fossil fuel out and using a more efficient fuel in say an industrial process so you know one that you and i were looking at uh for example like a cement plant in, in the united states semex um they are swapping a portion of the fuel that they use to create cement and they're going from coal which you know i think most people can agree is an inherently dirty fuel from a from a climate change perspective to, to a more efficient fuel type. Um, and that's, you know, that's laudable on unto itself, but from, from an offset standpoint, you know, the pros to a project like that is we we've talked a little bit about that baseline, right? That idea of how much carbon dioxide or its equivalent is emitted given this reality. And, and the baseline is quite easy to calculate in, in this circumstance. So, 
what that means is the actual impact of, of the avoidance is also easy to, to calculate. So there's a really clear story there for we actually know how much CO2 previously was going into the atmosphere and now is not going into the atmosphere. Um, and that's, that's positive. That's a good thing, right? That makes that, that gives some certainty to that, that credit or offset type and, and that creates quality. Um, the challenge on that is sometimes the additionality can be a little bit low. You know, it's maybe not the most efficient fuel switch, uh, you know, going from propane to natural gas isn't going to give you a huge benefit, uh, for example. So, um, you know, a, as a, as a credit, it, it's certainly an important one. Is it maybe, uh, what we would see as like the best performing, um, or I think maybe the highest impact, perhaps not. Uh, but you know, I, I think one that is absolutely worthwhile from a project standpoint in pursuing, and certainly there, there are, there are good offsite credits in, in, in that category. Um, Next, we have renewable energy, uh, renewable energy, kind of similar idea, right? We, we build a, a renewable uh, energy project, and that is a, ideally uh, replacing a fossil fuel electrical generation project. And, and therefore, we are avoiding the release of the CO2 that was previously coming from, say, that oil or, or diesel or, or coal power plant, right? So um, Argentina's got a lot of these, actually. Um, great wind capacity in, in Argentina. So the one that I looked at was the, the Manitalis Bear Wind Farm um, completed in 2018. Puts a lot of renewable energy onto the grid in Argentina. It's a 99 megawatt capacity wind farm. Actually, one of the highest potential total capacity wind farms in the world. Um, and it, it costs a lot of money to build. Uh, it was 200 million US dollars. Um, and, and so obviously part of the financing in this project is the ability to sell those those offsets, right? Um, now, when we look at renewable energy, there's a couple of things that stand out. First, I'm just going to say that the switch to renewable energy across the world, no matter what the offset situation is, is hugely important, right? We have to be doing this. Um, much like the fuel switching, the baseline is really easy to calculate. Uh, we know how much emissions the, the coal fire power plant had. And therefore, when we introduce the same capacity onto the grid in a renewable aspect, we know how much we are no longer emitting. The con is, well, there's a couple. The first one's really interesting, actually. Um, and it goes back to what I said earlier, which is we should be building renewable energy projects. And we are building a lot of them. And the cost for renewable energy projects has drastically dropped over the last few years to the point where it's actually less expensive to build the new fossil fuel projects. And because of that, that actually impacts the additionality, right? When we, this becomes just the, the, the sort of business of the day, this is what we do now, um, then we're not necessarily getting additional emissions reductions over not installing additional generation capacity in a fossil fuel. Um, so th that's one challenge. The other one is, um, you know, electricity unto itself is a commodity, much like carbon. And uh, utilities don't always turn off that fossil fuel plant um, because 
they want to sell that electricity or they want to keep it around in times when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow and we don't have the you know existing battery capacity on the grid um in order to to sort of overcome that challenge uh and then finally um this one is one when we see like example some renewable projects in in northern china um it's great they're generating electricity the avoidance story is it looks good on paper but if you can't bring that electricity to market because you can't build transmission lines or uh, logistically it's just really hard to get to or the, or there's in fact no market for that electricity, then the additionality is it's quite poor, right? If the electricity is not being used, it's not preventing the emission of fossil fuel generated electricity anywhere. So um, renewables, I think we're, we're, if we look at, if our listeners remember vintage types, we see a lot of early carbon credit or carbon offset projects uh, in that renewable category it's become a less desirable offset um, as the sort of market dynamics of renewables have changed largely to just kind of make them the order of the day. So I'll pause there for a second and say, like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you mentioned um, quite a, an interesting nuance there. And uh, let me ask you a question and, and you tell me if my comprehension is, is correct. That, Renewable energy projects, uh, they calculate the amount of carbon credits that are generated from those projects. It's often from a baseline that's based on, you know, what their generation capacity is, what that baseline capacity, you know, this, this wind farm can generate X amount of gigawatts of power. But because yes. it, that, you know, that's just a baseline capacity, not all of that capacity is actually being used. So then there, there actually is, uh, Maybe you don't call it overcrediting, but essentially, you know, the, the credits that it's generating is is a little bit overstated, and and therefore yeah. th those those credits may not actually represent one ton of CO two removed because it's not actually replacing, you know, an equivalent amount of of hydrocarbons. Is that is that correct? That, that yeah, that's that's a fair way of putting it, and and <laughs> that's just a challenge. I I, I think again we should be building renewable energy like that that's that's sort of a non-negotiable but whether they fit as like a really strong offset i think is is another question and and you know because of what you talked about there in terms of um just really kind of bringing that power to market generation versus used capacity they're just they're not necessarily the strongest credit type out there Next, I want to go on to. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no. I, I think yeah. I think um, so. I guess next you are going to go on to. Is it household devices? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, and I like this one. Um, okay. So what are what are household devices then? Right. So there's there's actually a, a broad set of of things that could fit in this household device category. But I think the most marketed, the most popular one is is what we would call cook stoves. And um, people may not know this, but the, the, the majority of the world uh, still cooks over an open flame, uh, often using wood. Um, and obviously, 
harvesting wood has a carbon impact. Burning wood has a carbon impact. And uh, the cook stove used in a, a huge swath of the global south are maybe not the most efficient um, cooking mechanisms, right? Um, so we could be using more efficient cook stoves, reducing the carbon impact. So an example of this, um, uh, Gold Standard, by the way, if we're talking about registries, Gold Standard has a lot of cook stove projects. This is this is sort of an area that they they play in well. Uh, would be the Giapa, and I hope I'm saying that right, Giapa project in Ghana. And that is replacing wood fire cook stoves with much, much, much more efficient wood fire cook stoves. And therefore reducing the amount of wood required, the amount of carbon burn or created through burning um, in order to achieve the same outcome. So, you know, pros to cook stoves are, are a couple things. One, baseline easy to calculate, right? We, we, we know how much carbon 10,000 cook stoves of the old type release when burning wood. And so we know how much more efficient the new ones are. And we can, we can really easily calculate that. The additionality strong, like there's, there's really probably zero chance that a lot of these communities would replace their cooking method without an external project coming in and saying, Hey, here's something better. Like, uh, there just isn't capital or time or education necessarily in these communities for the challenges of the cooking method that they're using. Um, and so it's, it, you know, from that standpoint, the additionality really, really strong. Um, also, these tend to support not just one, but many different sustainable development goals, which is a really important part about carbon offset projects in the global south. Um, that uh, they are in fact uh, not only just offsetting carbon emissions anywhere in the world, but they are in fact also benefiting the communities that these projects happen in. So um, the the cookstoves tell a really strong story there. Um, often it is young girls or women who are collecting the wood, uh, and when they have to collect less wood, they can, they can go to school, they can spend time starting businesses, they can spend time with their families. So that's a portion of it. It often, uh, therefore also enables small entrepreneurship, helps lift people out of poverty when they're not spending their whole time, uh, you know, gathering wood for, for, for cooking. And then on top of that, it promotes ecosystem health when you have to create more, or sorry, you have to create less deforestation for, the benefit of 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 cooking food um that's that's a net positive for those communities uh producing biodiversity providing all the security um that uh you know strong forest ecosystems provide in terms of food and water and all that kind of stuff so um i like cook stoves um they are a strong avoidance credit from from a science standpoint um, but they also have a lot of other spillover benefits to the local community. And, and I think just before I pause here, that's one of the reasons why you see them as they're, they're really popular, I think, with um, corporations when they're telling their, their net zero story. They'll often choose some of their uh, offsetting in a cook stove project because they can show all those other community benefits. So 
if I get this straight, um, fuel, you mentioned, because the first thing we talked about, the first category was fuel switching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and technically for household devices, this is also fuel switching, but yes. one's at more of an industrial level and one's at yeah. more of a household level. So that's kind of the yeah. distinction between those two. Yeah. And in the in the household devices, there's other ones too, like, you know, there, I, right. I believe in East Africa, I want to say in Kenya, there there's a, a pretty large project that replaces like irrigation pumps with pumps that are uh, solar powered. So, you know, it's a broad category. I'm choosing cook stoves to, to talk about because I, I like that story. Uh, but yeah, right. it's different than the industrial level fuel switching that we talked about in the, in the case of the cement plant. Right. And the sort of the other benefit, cause we talked about pricing in, in the previous episode and what are those mm-hmm. sort of factors that affect pricing. And, you know, one of the, call it intangible things that it's it's hard to sort of quantify, for example, with biodiversity for nature-based projects. But in this case, it's a real tangible example of of a a, a human social benefit of these projects that improve totally. livelihoods. And you know, that affects the price. But you know, today, you know, the pricing of a cook stove project, I guess it's, I mean, it's, you know, a little bit more, it's more than a a for example, a renewable energy project, which doesn't have that same yeah, benefit, yeah. but it's really hard to 100%. price in that, 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 you know, that social benefit. So I guess, would it be fair to say that, you, you know, we're still kind of undervalue, you know, these credits, like we're undervaluing them because it's just so hard to quantify today. We just don't have a methodology. Yeah, I, I think so. Despite, it. despite the fact that they already traded a premium over, right. Say just a run of the mill, um, renewable energy project, you're, you're right. Like it's hard to price in all of those intangibles, but they're there. And I, and I think we will see as the market sort of, um, corrects itself, um, towards higher quality, which is a trend that we've absolutely been seeing over the, the, the past while, um, Projects like Cookstow projects will trade at an even further premium because of the the strong math, the the SDG benefits, um, you know, and and right, because we're holding the, you know s- companies to be better global citizens, not just environmentally, exactly, right? But also yeah, socially. and so there's there yeah. you know, l- like let's be honest, companies love that marketing story. It's, it looks good in an annual report, and in addition, there is truth to the to the story they're telling there, right? So there's there's benefit from multiple parties. And when we see that kind of win-win scenario in the credit types, um, that usually commands a premium. Okay. So that that's well understood. I guess the, the last bucket, which is the bucket we, you know, we often talk a lot about uh, mm. nature-based solutions. Yeah. Why don't we sort of talk about the different categories within that, that sort of larger bucket? Right. So uh, there are a ton of categories in nature-based solutions. And and I think even when we, when we get towards some of the engineered solutions, it'll feel like there's some blurred lines there. Um, I'm going to start with blue carbon because it's another, I think, really just cool project type. Um, and then, and it, that in itself is like a really, really broad, broad category. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk about the, I think, what people often associate with offset projects, which is like forestry um, and, and, and forestry practices, et cetera. Um, blue carbon really 
catch-all term for really any sort of nature-based solution involving the ocean. So that could be you know, planting kelp forests, that could be renewing mangroves, um, kind of anything in between. Um, I'm going to focus on the mangroves one because it's probably the largest blue carbon type. Uh, and uh, there are a number of these projects specifically that happen in Myanmar. Um, and uh, if you don't know, um, actually the best mangrove restoration happens in Myanmar. Like the, the, the teams that are doing it there are better at doing it than anywhere else in the world. Um, but they're restoring. It's, it's kind of a combination of, of protecting, restoring, and planting mangroves. So it sort of gets that whole, um, runs the whole kind of gamut there. Um, now, pros to, to blue carbon is just high efficiency over other nature-based solutions, right? Um, so the amount of, if you think about like the amount of carbon sequestered per hectare of planted blue carbon versus forestation, it's like about four times more efficient at sequestering carbon at just the lowest point. Um, there are projects that scale higher than that, uh, than say planting a forest is. So that's, that's, I mean, that's amazing, right? Um, and if there's one thing the world has a lot of, it's coastline. Um, and we've, we've destroyed a lot of the mangroves in the world. So there's an opportunity to go back and fix a lot of that, right? Um, whereas I, I think I've seen some stats like just the amount of land available for, for reforestation or afforestation. There's a cap to that at some point. There's obviously a cap to the blue carbon stuff too, but we're much further away from it and it is a higher efficiency project type now on the con side um like some of the nature-based solutions uh the permanent so if you remember what that means it's the the time that a project can guarantee that that co2 is not released back into the atmosphere uh permanence with nature-based projects generally sort of 25 to 40 years some places stretch it out to 60 um, and we'll see that that's different in the engineered kind of removal projects. Uh, but that's, that's a challenge, right? Um, that mangrove could be destroyed by a hurricane. Um, you know, we would have leakage there, um, that, that mangrove will have a natural cycle where it will stop its most efficient sequestration of carbon dioxide. So that's. That's not only a challenge for blue carbon projects, but a challenge for um, for uh, nature-based solutions in general. Now, there are some very cool things that you can do with that, like when you marry it with an engineered one. And so we'll come to that in just a bit. Uh, but like, but before we talk about that, you know, yeah. we, you and I, we both love blue carbon. Can can you also talk yeah. about some of those um, other social benefits? For example, you know, oh yeah, seeing a lot right. of right. Know, so uh, severe weather events, floods, yeah, um, improving life. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, there's, there's, I'm not going to give an exhaustive list here because I think it's, it, it would be difficult to do that, but, um, spillover benefits from blue carbon projects, uh, obviously mangroves and, and enhanced coastal ecosystems provide a barrier to, um, to the, the larger storms that we see from climate change, right? Um, I was listening to a 
uh, New York Times podcast recently just talking about the devastation of coral reefs in Florida, right? And I think something like 80% of Florida's coral reefs are gone at a time when they actually need them the most to stop the effects of hurricanes. Mangroves behave in a similar fashion for coastal communities all across the world, right? They prevent flooding. They clean water, right? So they, they, um, they prevent pollution from entering the ocean. And they are an important nursery for fish. Uh, many fish species use mangroves as nurseries and those fish species help feed communities especially in a time when due to drought and climate change terrestrial farming is even more difficult than it ever has been so relying on food from the ocean that protein from the ocean has become that much more important and uh you know so those are just a few of the of the 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 benefits of of blue carbon right um, not an exhaustive list by any means. Uh, challenges, as we talked about permanence, also logistics. Sometimes it's just hard to get to some of these remote um, ecosystems, restore them, um, put people there in a way that can make meaningful change. But uh, absolutely worthwhile projects doing. And and quite frankly, because of their their high efficiency, they are an incredibly popular uh, credit type right now. And, and I think we see trading with a lot of permanence or sorry, uh, a lot of premium. Uh, for example, Microsoft uh, has a pretty large position in, in, uh, carbon offsets and a huge portion of their portfolio is in blue carbon. Now we get to forestry. Yep, okay. All, All right. right. So, okay. Oh, no, I thought you, we're done. You got, no. I mean, you got questions. Well, no, we we got some I, forestry, obviously, you know, for where I am in the world is like a big thing. But if you got blue right. carbon questions, we should we should cover those before we we get into forestry because this one is uh, this one can get a little spicy. Yeah, let's keep going. Okay, so forestry, um, you have on the one hand uh, deforestation avoidance, which is exactly as it sounds, and is an avoidance credit type. Um, I'm going to put a pin in that one. Come back to it. And then you have for, um, uh, reforestation, putting a, a forest where there once was one, but you chopped it down, or afforestation, which is putting a forest where there hasn't been one for a long time or there never was one. So on the afforestation, reforestation side, they're kind of the same thing, um, or, or they're very similar. Uh, an example project would be MTPL in India, where they are, are, are planting forests. Um, pros? the additionality is pretty good, right? If there wasn't a forest there or you chopped it down and you're putting it back, then you're adding additional reduction or, or um, to, to the, the carbon offset story. Um, we know what trees do in terms of the amount of CO2 that they sequester. So the, 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 the calculations, the science is good. Um, on a con side, it takes time, right? Like it takes several years before a forest kind of reaches peak efficiency for carbon sequestration. I want to say it's like, I want to say it's six to 10 years. I might be a little bit off there by a year or two, but, um, and in the case of, um, 
reforestation, there is like a carbon debt to that land that kind of has to be accounted for in the additionality or, or the calculation of the baseline rather. Um, because you, you have released carbon in removing a forest, right? You, you wouldn't want to just chop down a forest to replant it is basically what I'm saying. And that would not be a, a, a viable offset. It would be a, a bad situation. Um, but the other challenge, of course, um, like any nature-based solution is, is the permanence, right? Lots of things can happen to forests. It's, it's hard to, to look out past 40 years and say, yeah, this thing's going to hold its carbon or it's going to keep on sequestering carbon. I mean, it will, but, but not in the way that the engineered solutions are going to provide permanence. We'll see that in a sec, but yeah, it's a uh, deforestation um, or sorry, reforestation and afforestation are, are kind of, they sort of straddle that, that avoidance removal kind of category. They are more in the removal camp though. And, and they are a popular credit type. And from what we'll see versus some of the other engineered solutions is they're relatively cost-effective to implement and humans have been doing it for hundreds of years. So it's not like it's new science. We're, we're not trying to make a proof of concept. We know how to plant forests and we know what they do. Now, deforestation avoidance, that is the protection of a forest that was to be chopped down. Uh, there's lots of examples of this. Um, one that we've referenced before is Cantigan in Indonesia, so protecting a large track of, of tropical rainforest. There are all kinds of spillover benefits that, as we've talked about before, biodiversity standpoints, uh, you know, food security, uh, in, engagement with, with indigenous populations. Um, they are... I would say right now that they are the greatest inventory in the voluntary carbon market. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, I think the biggest is it's the easiest one to do. You don't have to do much. You don't even have to send people out to plant trees. You just protect the trees that are already there. With that comes some controversy. And so on the pro side, it's easy. Science is solid. We get it. Um, there's lots of, sp I think people can agree not chopping down a forest has positive benefits. Like it's a good thing. We should, we should probably reduce the number of forests we're chopping down. The challenge becomes, um, the additionality question. So, and I think unfortunately, because of some of the challenges in deforestation avoidance and there's, look, there's, there's all kinds of nuance in it. There's inside that credit type, there's tons of different standards and methodologies. There's, there's red, there's red plus there's jurisdictional red. There's all these different things. Um, but unfortunately, because of some of the challenges with deforestation avoidance, that brush has been used to paint the market in general, uh, with some negative connotations. Now where the challenge comes from is, and where, where bad actors have maybe participated in the market in the past is if nothing bad was going to happen to that forest, was it an additional, was there any additionality to it? Right. If the forest was never going to be chopped down and you protected it, what is it adding at all? It's not. And, and I think that's the challenge, right? 
And, and, and so the frameworks behind it are evolving and becoming far more stringent because of these challenges. And I think, you know, again, it's a laudable thing to do. We need to protect forests for all the, the reasons we've talked about in multiple episodes of the show. Having said that, there are challenges with this, with this credit type, with this offset type, because sometimes you can't demonstrate that something bad was going to happen to this forest. And it can't just be, oh, I thought about cut, cutting it down, but then I changed my mind. Like there actually has to be a threat of that forest being harvested. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there on the deforestation avoidance because I know that one's a lot to unpack. I um, I will say that um, the good ones traded a premium, right? The Cantagans, the Rimbarayas of the world, they traded a premium price. Uh, you know, they're sort of anywhere from... Eight ten dollars a ton all the way up, uh, depending on on the vintage and and the agreement. Uh, the bad ones, or or I shouldn't say bad ones, the ones with with less solid foundation under the science uh, the science of like and the and the methodology uh, was this actually going to be chopped down? You know what's the monitoring look like? The the lower quality ones they trade at a discount, um, and I think when people associate oh, a company has removed their carbon pro problem by writing a check to protect a force, that's the offset type that they're thinking about. Right. And and just to be clear, I guess, you know, a, a lot of the quote-unquote lower quality projects, avoided deforestation projects we're talking about are using older, outdated baselines. Yes. And, and you know, yeah. we, we can talk about what those new, you know, integrity and transparency initiatives are in the next, mm -hmm. in a, you know, in a future episode that is addressing all of these problems such that they, a newer batch or, you know, projects that are using these updated guidelines and transparency initiatives actually are indeed of high quality and are indeed protecting, you know, patches of, of ecosystems that would have otherwise been, been used for, you know, timber or, or mines or, or what have you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I just yeah. also from like the standpoint of like companies making their problems going away, you know, there are a lot of evolving standards happening in the marketplace, you know, primarily through the voluntary carbon market initiative and the integrity council for voluntary carbon markets sort of dictating on the one hand, uh, what can project types say about their projects and how much the, you know, benefit they create in terms of, of, uh, emission avoidance or removal. And then on the other hand, what can the companies who are buying these offsets actually say, and what percentage of their, their net zero strategy should be achieved through offsetting versus emissions reduction. And I think, you know, what we are seeing the market come to is that you can't just plow ahead with only one solution. Right. And so I, I, I think that People want to have a magic bullet for, for climate change, but there isn't one like it's a shotgun, it's shotgun pellets, right? Like, um, right. Right. And, and that's where those, these removal projects come in as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so transitioning to, to removal, um, that is projects that are actually removing, uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, and, so we, we talk about this kind of interchangeably with sometimes with um, engineered projects or, or what have you. Uh, we've talked about this one on our Carbon News Show. I love biochar. I know you're a biochar fan too. Um, that 
that's kind of a blend uh, of a nature-based project, right? Because you are, you're growing a plant material that is sequestering carbon. Then you harvest that plant material really quickly. You take it to a plant where it goes through a process called pyrolysis, where it burns at a really high temperature in a, in a special furnace. Uh, and it locks the carbon dioxide in that plant material into this charcoal, this biochar. Um, so a huge example of that happening in Canada, in Montreal, where, where North America's largest biochar plant is being built right now. Um, there's a whole host of biochar investments in North America. Um, the, the pros here are permanence, 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 right? Where we talked about nature-based solutions having a permanence of sort of 20 to 40 years, maybe 60, depending on the methodology, the timeline. Biochar is like 100 years. So it's, it's high, high permanence. More the than that. other benefit to biochar is the end product has an industrial application, right? Uh, as we've talked about, it can be mixed into cement, can be, um, yeah, put into soil for soil enhancement. Agri agricultural all additive, yeah. Ex exactly, yeah. all kinds of different stuff. So, um, you know, that just makes the, the financing story for these projects that much stronger, right? On, on the cons, um, logistically speaking, you, the, the plant material that's grown to, uh, to be used in the pyrolysis, you can't, it can't be that far away from the biochar plant. Otherwise, you start to leak carbon dioxide emissions, right? You have to get it there before it starts to decompose. So it can really only be about 200 kilometer radius from the biochar plant that you are collecting this plant material. And then on top of that, some it, it's energy intensive. And sometimes, depending on the jurisdiction, the energy required to, to do this might come from fossil fuels. Now, now a lot of this stuff you can activate. It's kind of this self-propelling reaction once it gets started. Uh, but you got to use fossil fuels to truck the bio biological material there. So there are, you know, elements of the supply chain right now for biochar that maybe aren't as as clean as we would like, but the permanence is high. It's really high and it is a removed, uh, you know, ton of CO2 and, and, and that's easy to calculate. So, um, you know, biochar, a great project. And then this is why we see biochar trading at, at, at big premiums, right? This is, you know, um, I think meta committed to buying biochar from a producer at like 140, $160 a ton right now we're getting. I think to a much higher cost of carbon, which is, you know, much closer to say the social cost of carbon. Um, and at those dollar amounts, these projects make a lot of sense and they have a strong offset story. They have a strong removal story. Uh, the other one, which I think a lot of people have assumed is maybe going to be this, if there were to be a silver bullet uh, to climate change, um, it would be direct air capture or DAC. Um, that is just quite literally of um, an industrial scale vacuum filtering the air and removing CO2. Um, an example of that is, is in fact, right in my backyard in Squamish, British Columbia, which is just north of Vancouver, there's carbon engineering. They have a proof of concept plant uh, right down in the Squamish Harbor at the, the uh, end of Howe Sound. Uh, you can see it from the highway. And uh, they are, they pull carbon dioxide out of the, the atmosphere and they turn it into tiny little pellets 
Uh, and they, you can use that in a ton of different industrial applications as well. Um, they talk a lot about it being a feedstock to like a biofuel. Um, and Hey, I like that one's the easiest to calculate in terms of like, we, you weigh those pellets. That's the carbon dioxide you pulled out of the atmosphere, right? Not quite that simple, but you get what I'm saying. Um, the permanence is fantastic here right? On the level of biochar, really, really high. And the additionality is also really, really high. Like if you didn't suck the no, carbon dioxide, is not going to, that additional carbon dioxide is not going to come out of the atmosphere on its own. Um, I mean, it will in the carbon cycle, but we're, we're, we're really kind of speeding up a process here. Uh, the challenge with, with DAC is it's expensive, really expensive. Um, it's energy intensive. So again, if you are in a jurisdiction, that does not have access to uh, a good amount of renewable energy, uh, then you are reducing the effectiveness of your offset because you're having to emit carbon to produce energy in order to, to run your direct air capture. Luckily, British Columbia, uh, the grid here is almost 99% renewable energy, large hydroelectric uh, um, installations in BC, but not everywhere has that, right? Um, that's just luck of geography for us here. Uh, and then um, the scalability is is a question mark still for DAC, right? It's it's um, a less proven process. Um, part of the challenge is just I, like we talk about CO2 as if it's everywhere and it that we must just be overflowing with it. And while that's true from the standpoint of there is too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from what it normally is, as an actual percentage of the atmosphere, it is not large, right? Like it's quite dilute. It's just even at that small concentration, it's too much. Um, and so that means like you gotta, you, you have to run a lot of air through a direct air capture unit to get any kind of meaningful amount of carbon dioxide sequestered. Um, which is, you know, that's a challenge. Um, I think at one point, the sort of cost, uh, the, the break-even costs of DAC were like it, carbon dioxide uh, had to be going for $600 a ton, um, which is crazy. I don't, I don't know that any offset has ever sold for $600 a ton. Um, I would say now my understanding is it's sort of more in the high 200s, low 300s, but still... Um, that would be at the the high, like past the high end of the market um, right now, uh, and so it really only exists in a proof of concept until it can achieve economies of scale. But it is promising, right? I, I guess you know. The, I guess you know. I don't really have any comments on that, but you know, the scalability is is, is really really something that we struggle with because. Climeworks, uh, which is the original darling child of, of direct air capture, they were mm -hmm. you know, essentially a giant vacuum sucking up CO2 in the atmosphere and then injecting that into a, um, an underground reservoir using a, right. a well, right. so drilling the, holes. Yeah. So, so now with, with uh, carbon engineering, we're trying to find industrial use cases of, of, of the CO2 um, for example, you inject it into cement or using it as building materials so so that you can actually use the CO2 because CO2 you know is a gas that we actually use as well. 
So that, that yeah, drops we, the cost. We, we also make the, the funny thing is we, we make it in industrial process, right? Right. Like, right. like right. Uh, not only are we putting too much of it in the atmosphere, but we actually then go and manufacture it as well uh, right. in one of life's great ironies. But as you, you know, as you point out, it's still incredibly energy intensive and therefore capital mm -hmm. intensive to pull this CO2 out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the cost of CO2 from an industrial standpoint doesn't, I mean, it helps, it helps, but it's not making up the Delta. Um, right. And, and yeah, the projects are just really expensive. That impacts the scalability of them for sure. So are there any other types of, um, engineered removal methods then? Yeah. Now remember when I said, Hey, we've, there, there are some engineered methods that kind of blur the line a little bit between nature-based and engineered. And so I, if we take a step back, we have to think about this idea of the carbon cycle. Uh, and, and, you know, the funny thing is, um, a common trope for anti-climate change people is, but without carbon dioxide, plants wouldn't grow. Um, or I heard we need carbon dioxide. So you're just going to cancel farming. No, no, like, like everything in the world, there is a balance and there is a, you know, there is a natural cycle, uh, of carbon dioxide being released from decaying material entering the atmosphere, you know, reacting with the ocean. The ocean is actually the most powerful sink of carbon dioxide in the world uh, and has absorbed 90% of the emissions that we have pumped into the atmosphere since the beginning of industrialized times. Go hug the, the ocean sometime soon because without it, this would be way worse. But the point is we are tipping the scales out of balance on the carbon cycle. Right. Um, and, uh, we have already maxed out or very closely maxed out many of the natural aspects that our planet has to be able to deal with an excess emission of carbon dioxide, because at different points of history of this planet, the, the, the amount of carbon dioxide sequestered in the earth, uh, in the ocean and in the atmosphere has changed. But the point is for where it is right now, we are pushing that out of balance. That's my rant over about the carbon cycle. This is to say that there are engineered solutions that kind of spur that carbon cycle along or, or help push it in the right direction. You know, if you think about any chemical reaction that exists at equilibrium, you can kind of push that, that reaction one way or the other, right? So there, there are things like, uh, like biomass. Um, there's, there's a project here in British Columbia from a company called King Tide that, that's working on an ocean-based biomass uh, carbon sequestration project you know, an accelerant to the, to the natural, um, carbon cycle. I believe it's using algae if, if, if I'm not incorrect there. Kelp. Yeah. Um, so kelp. Grow kelp. Yeah. 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 Brown kelp algae. Bury it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, right. Yeah. You know, you take brown kelp, an efficient sequester of carbon dioxide, you grow it, you harvest it, you bury it. Um, another one that I wanted to bring up was Vesta carbon in the United States. So they, they actually do, um, uh, they take a, a, um, a, a product called olivine and uh, they, they spread the olivine on the, the beaches. It's, it's quite a novel little process, right? And then the normal tidal action or wave action actually pulls that into the water and uh, it reacts with the dissolved CO2 in the water. 
And what it creates is bicarbonate, also known as baking soda, which is a very stable product for carbon dioxide to be in. And uh, it sinks. It sinks in the water column to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so it's way down there. It's sequestered for a long time. Uh, and because it's removed CO2 from the water, it actually creates space for CO2 to then be removed from the air by the ocean, right? So what it's doing is it's perpetuating the carbon cycle. Um, this is like, it's, it's actually like stupidly simple science. Um, it's crazy how, how simplistic it is. Um, and so the, the, you know, the pro here is, is the permanence is high, like many of the engineered solutions. Cause like that stuff is stable and it's at the bottom of the ocean. It's not getting disturbed. It's not going anywhere. Um, the additionality is high. Cause like if, unless you're seeding the beaches with this material, like you, you are speeding up the, a natural process, uh, that takes many, many years to do. Um, and Actually, it's deceptively cheap, right? Like, you just got to put this stuff on the beach and walk away. Um, from a con standpoint, um, well, it's just like the logistics are a bit challenging, right? There's only so much beach that people are going to let you spread this stuff on. Uh, you got to truck it there, uh, which invariably involves you know, something emitting carbon dioxide, you got to get these precursors to those, to those places. But, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny to think how, how simple some of these engineer processes are, but like there, there's other examples of this where they do it on land, terrestrial rock weathering, soil enhancement, same kind of thing, but, um, you know, spurring along the carbon cycle of our planet, is is a absolutely viable engineered solution for sequestering carbon and and there are some some projects uh in that category that are that have really compelling stories it, it, yeah and, and Bree, um, that's that's my exhaustive list by the way um okay actually we probably should have said this earlier but um strap onto your skates this is gonna be a long one <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no but um for the engineered sort of removals or removals in general there's even mm -hmm. a specialized term for them that's called CDR, which is just basically means right, carbon yeah, dioxide yeah. removal credits. Um, yes, but I you, you know, you, you, you mentioned right. something that's you, you, that is very, very important um, to you know to, to state and restate again is that there's no single solution to climate change. There's no single silver no. bullet, and so all of these. You know, you might say, okay, well, why would I buy one versus one credit type versus the other? The scale of the climate problem is so big. We've emitted so much and we get to take out so much and reduce or avoid so much emissions that we need all of these types of projects and all of these credit types yeah. to, to meet our net zero targets. Yeah. And, and I think you, you really sort of hit the nail on the head there, which is, uh, you know, offsets aren't the magic bullet to solve climate change. They're part of the solution. And within carbon credits and carbon offsets, there isn't one project type that is the be all end all. Um, they right. all have different benefits, right? And, and so to contrast, say, you know, biochar, which is a really strong permanence engineered story. Would you do that and stop protecting forests? I don't think so. 
right? right? Would you only protect forests and not invest in communities uh, having more security around their their food processes and and spurring on local entrepreneurship and and that kind of thing through through a household device project? No, you wouldn't. Like all these things should happen. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, some of these project types, if climate change is the reason that they have to happen, that's great. That, that's important. I, I think that's a, that maybe is the side benefit, but, um, yeah, you, one isn't necessarily better than the other. Um, they all have a place in this fight. Uh, like we all, like we all have a place in this fight. So, um, so a as a recap of this it. episode, yeah, we, we we talked about a lot Listen, of a lot of project types. Yeah, they're all important. Uh, you should yeah. buy them all. Uh, you should invest yeah. in them all. Yeah, exactly. Um, buy them all. As a recap yeah. to this episode, just listen to it on one point two five speed. Um, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a but but I think it's worth educating people, right? Um, sure, because it's easy to look at the flaws in one project type and say that all project types are flawed in the same way. And that's just not true. They all have benefits. They all have drawbacks. Um, the biggest benefit is they are fighting climate change. Agreed. And on that bombshell, I guess it's yeah. time for us to end. It's yeah, yeah. always a pleasure to chat with you, Kyle. Uh, I think you're coming out with a new podcast is it a new news bit that you're doing oh yeah we'll we'll see we'll uh maybe you know follow us at, at midori carbon on tiktok instagram twitter facebook uh stay tuned for some some more info there um and you know we've got some exciting stuff happening obviously uh check us out at midoricarbon.com uh sign up for the wait list um and and of course uh you know follow Follow Derek and Co at Wealth Green um, on on all the Wealth social Green. platforms. Um, yep, Instagram at Wealth Green app and wealthgreen.app. Yeah, and so I mean, it's ex exciting stuff, but yeah, there's there's more to come here. Yeah, already. Thanks a lot, Kyle. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, thank you, Derek. And, um, you know, I look forward to us connecting soon. And, and uh, obviously, everyone, thank you for listening today. Um, we know, especially this one, because uh, it's a long one. Uh, but yeah. we appreciate that you're here. Um, you know, you can interact with us uh, on our respective socials, ask questions, uh, but also check out the website offtakes.show, um, where you can find show notes, uh, links to the podcast on YouTube, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, but yeah, again, we really appreciate you spending an hour uh, with us today, which is, um, I know a lot. Yeah. Thanks, everybody.